Jumbo. <laughs> Just got back from Africa, so I had to bring props. Um, man, what a great trip. Thank you. Jumbo, uh, Jumbo, Jumbo, you can adopt this. It's fun. That's a fun one. It's like, sup? It's like, what's happening? You know, I mean, that, that, that's what Jumbo is. It's like slang for hello. Um, but I know you guys, you know, want to do the whole right thing, you know, with this whole deal. So, so how, about, uh, how about if we do it this way? Let me put up the Swahili for the blessing. How about that, okay? Put up the Swahili. I'm going to say the first one you repeat after me, Awe Pia Nawe. Okay, that's, it's just like it sounds, okay? Mungu Awe Nanyi. Let's try it again. It's pretty good. And that Mangu Awe Nanyi. It sounds just like it is. We've been in Africa with 95 people from Parkview, uh, including my wife and my daughter and son-in-law from Nashville. Um, probably the funnest part for most of us was the opportunity to get to see the sponsored children that we have. That's our newest sponsored girl over there in Africa, Shayla. And you'll see her class sing. The, he's got the whole world in his hands at the end of this. Really, really fun to be able to do that. But we're going to Africa. We do Africa. It's been a part of our cannonball thing here. It's been a part of our, our outreach because Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, So we went to the place where they still have these spears. Okay, We went to the, the uttermost part. But Jesus said in Acts 1, you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world. And we were in the uttermost parts. At one point, a van broke down and the driver turned to the people in the van. We had a bunch of vans. There's a lot of people. He turned to the people in the van. He said, you know, I think my battery came disconnected, but I can't get out right now because there are lions around. (laughs) Not a problem you hear in America very often. Um, uh, uh, We started a school. You started a school in Turkana. And Turkana is way out in the boonies. And these are your children, Parkview. These are the ones that you sponsor. If you look really close, you might see yours in there. Because this is the Turkana school. We, the, with the cannonball money, we built this school. And then you guys are sponsoring these kids. And this is where they live. These are the homes they live in out in Turkana area, okay? It is still like that. It's like Gilligan's Island. You're looking for the giant spider. It's crazy out there, okay? And, and Pastor Sean had to... S- Slaughter a goat so they could eat it. You know, I mean, that, that's the kind of place where, where we were. Uh, I would encourage you if you want to find out more about what we do over there, what's going on over there. Sean Mixon is our missions pastor. It's his website there for his blog, and mine is on there. Uh, you can see a great story that we had about our, uh, our older sponsored kid that we were actually with some friends in the congregation actually able to move his mom and little siblings out of the slums into uh, a house that they have for the very first time their property owned. It's a really cool story on my blog. Um, but this was all a part of your cannonball. Okay? As a matter of fact, here's the plaque uh, to Parkview Christian Church um, that this center was built right here in Turkana, and it's a part of Cannibal. I know some of you are like, you're new, you don't know what I'm talking about, but two years ago, we decided to make a big splash in the world and let the splash make ripples go out all over, and part of that is, is the things that we're doing here, uh, which we didn't even know was starting a Sunday night service and, and adding a campus and adding some building and, and, and adding a new site and all those different things, but part of that was about going out into the world, and that's what this all did, so thank you for that. Um, just, uh, you know, this is where we were most of the time, however. This is not where the lions are, at least not those kinds of lions. Um, the slums of Nairobi have 1.5 million people in 1% of the landmass of Nairobi. Within a few square miles, there are 1.5 
uh, million people together uh, living just like this in the worst slums of the world, kids playing in the middle of all that, and you don't want to know what's in those plastic bags, and they're everywhere, and, and it's unbelievable. And I, I made a little video, I had a video guy just kind of walk with me, just barely into this area, so you could just kind of get a feel for what it's like to be in the slums of Nairobi. tempted to not want to reach out and touch a person. It's in the slums of Nairobi where 40% of the people are infected or affected by HIV and AIDS. Um, affected meaning they lost their parents and they're orphaned by it. Infected, you know, obviously, you know what I'm saying. Very few kids in school, most of them never make it to high school. Very, very few of them. The government doesn't recognize that they're there, just kind of oblivious to what's going on. Um, and most of the kids never went to school until Mary Kamau showed up. Young people, you need to hear this. Mary Kamau, Wallace and Mary are the ones who run this ministry. Mary Kamau is the Mother Teresa of Nairobi. Mary was a college student when she recognized the plight of the children in her town and started at lunchtime. This is such an awesome story. At lunchtime, she would go out and she would take sack lunches to the kids in the slums. And she started getting people to help her do that. She ended up marrying Wallace, who had a, a, a good job and was able to support the family. And she started this ministry and started a school. And in 2007, when I first met them, there were 300 kids in two schools. This last week when we were there, there are 10,000 students in 16 schools. That's what God can do with a sack lunch. Matter of fact, I didn't even think about it before, but that is exactly the five loaves and two fish, isn't it? I mean, that's like Mary bringing her little lunch and, and God just saying, hey, I mean, it took a few years, but God just has blessed it and blessed it and blessed it. And it's unbelievable. And these children, oh my gosh, these children are unbelievable. They, they worship God in a way that we could possibly never understand. Their hearts are so pure. This is actually in Joska. 
which is one of the boarding schools, which is like a beautiful thing because in the boarding school, the kids can get out of the slums and go live there. And some of our team was like, wow, these boarding schools aren't really very nice. You know, there's like triple bunks and there's, you know, sheet metal walls. And, and our team is kind of like, you know, could we build a nicer place for them? And I'm like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. You, you, you got no perspective. You have to understand that most of the kids, when they walk into the dorm and they see that they're going to have a bed break down in tears because they've never had a bed in their life. Our family that we moved two boys and, and, and four little siblings and their mom out to this house from the slums, they had one bench that somebody had given them and a couple of mats to lay on the floor. Didn't even think about the fact that now we've got to go back and buy them some furniture. It's, it's, that, that's how these people live. Now, this is a picture of the classroom of one of the schools right here, uh, 70 kids in there, beautiful as can be. Um, and we did, I'll just tell you a little bit about what we did, just so you can know. We had a special needs team uh, that went over and did, uh, did work over there and uh, helping with special needs because if you've got special needs, if you're in the slums, you've got no luck anyway. you got special needs in the slums, you've really got no luck. This next picture, the boy on the right walked into the school on a broom handle with some friends helping him. He obviously has severe disabilities. He'd never been in a wheelchair before. We brought him a wheelchair. We got him set up. He's now got crutches to get around the slums in. I mean, the special needs team was off the hook. It was unbelievable. We had a special self-defense team because uh, we have a bunch of people that are trained in martial arts and self-defense, and they go over there all the time to train these people, because these, these girls especially, I mean, you want to talk about lions, they're there, and they need to understand how to protect themselves. We had a medical team uh, that saw 500 patients a day, and I'm talking about you know serious things as well as somebody said on the medical team, I've never seen this much ringworm in my life. I mean, you, you're not supposed to see ringworm anymore. This is 2013. Um, we had business training. For people who were ready, we'd given them loans already, and then they'd come back and they'd done well. And so this is the second tier of the team that was learning how to go out and to start businesses. All, all they need is 100 bucks, and they can go out and start a business in Nairobi. That's the way that that works. We had a, a massage team that was working on the kids that were there and also teaching the moms to do massage for their babies. We had a photography team, which I don't have pictures of because they were all taking the pictures, so that's kind of awkward. We painted a mural. Um, just on the wall because the walls are all drab and gray and there's no light. They just use natural light. So we painted this mural. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It was really great. Our construction team, so much fun. Corey's like 17 years old and he's welding. He'd get arrested for that in the U.S., but it doesn't matter. I mean, he's over there learning how to do this. We're cutting wood with hand saws. It's, it's primitive as can be, but it's, it was so unbelievably rewarding to us. We did pastor training. We took some of our team over. Casey and us, uh, my wife and my daughter doing training for the worship leaders and our children. They, they planned their Easter service all together. It was really fun. And then uh, children's workers went over and, uh, and took care of the children's people over there who had no idea idea how to do children's ministry, and um, we did all kinds of fun things with that. Uh, we did IT training. We brought a computers over, did some teaching with that. I had an IT team going on. Um, Casey preached a couple of times. We had a couple of church services. I made Casey preach because I was on a later flight, and I didn't land until like four in the morning, and I was like, you're doing it. So he did, and it was great. Um, and we all tried to stay awake because it was, I mean, you know, the jet lag is just brutal, but such a beautiful thing, worshiping with them. I got to teach some pastors. We worked on some church planting ideas and then randomly did things. Like I went to visit the business school and I'd already picked up a baby because, you know, that's just me. I don't have grandkids yet. So I'd already had a baby and they're like, hey, could you come up here and teach us? I'm like, okay. So I just went up there with a baby because that's the way it worked. And we just generally had a blast with these people in Nairobi, the most beautiful people in the world. You can't imagine 
Um, we had, uh, you know, some of our team got sick. Obviously, one scorpion bite, uh, one van broke down in the middle of the worst traffic in Nairobi you've ever seen, but we survived. And, and we thank you for your prayers because 95 people on a trip across the world is pretty crazy, and we left no man behind, so we're pretty happy about it. And, uh, and that's, that's a big deal, okay? And, and I would tell you, thank you, yes. That's a, that was a God thing. It's amazing. And none of them will complain about Chicago roads or traffic ever again. Nairobi is three million people and no stoplights. I mean, it is unbelievable. And the, probably the most thankful thing we'll be remembering for the rest of the year is that we have toilets that you can actually sit on. And um, boy, that's really something you take for granted. Just think about it, ladies. Sean and Amy did a great job, and, uh, you know, a hole in the floor just doesn't cut it, am I right? Sean and Amy did a great job, and I just want to thank them. But we're glad that we're back. Uh, I can't believe that I missed um, Christmas last week. I hope you still got me a present. But here's the problem for me. When I go out of town, when I go out of, out, of the, out of the country, especially on a missions trip, I've been on so many missions trips to Latin American countries that I just do Latin American stuff. I just go into Spanish. So I was walking around all week when somebody would do something, I'd say, gracias, you know, and they'd be just looking at me like, you know, uh, now it's the wrong thing. So now I'll be walking around saying jumbo for a while because my brain is really small. So here's what I, I just got to say to you. Feliz Navidad. That's all I can say. Okay, Feliz Navidad. Merry Christmas. I'm glad that Jesus was born, aren't you? Because we spent a long time, if you've been around here, getting to the place where we could finally get to the New Testament. And I think most of us would say, you know what, man, let's get done with this, okay? These people are, are so dumb, they keep doing the same mistakes over and over again. Let's get to Jesus. And here's the weird part, when you realize the story of Jesus. We go from what Tim Sutherland did last week to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, age 30 this week. We don't know anything about what happened to Jesus growing up, right? We don't know. I mean, we got one little story when he's 12 and he gets lost from his parents, but that's it. We don't know if he went through a hipster phase. We don't know if he, you know, had a goatee and skinny jeans. We don't know if he tweeted. We don't know if he had a WWID bracelet. We don't know anything about Jesus. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's usually a double reaction to that one. And the gospel writers do this on purpose. You know, they, they, the gospel writers are like, I'm sorry you can't hear about Jesus' high school crush or whether he went through a Dougie dance phase or any of that stuff. That's not important. What's important is what Jesus did at age 30. Because from age 30 to age 33, only three years, he changed the world. In less than one term of office... Uh, you know, obviously he wasn't running for re-election, but in less than one term of office, Jesus changed the world. And the fascinating thing about the story today is that he didn't do it the way anybody else ever did. If you've been around here for most of the story, you understand that, that what's been going on, and in case you're not knowing what I'm talking about, we've been going through this thing. We're going 31 weeks. It'll go all the way up to Easter. Easter will coincide. And then a few weeks after that about the early church, and then we'll be done. We've been going through this thing. And what we've studied in the Old Testament is that, is that finally God gets to the point. He, he keeps trying to, He starts this nation, and He keeps trying to make them be who He wants them to be, and they keep turning away from Him. And finally, He, he you know, he's, He does the Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? Might be the devil, might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And then finally, God says, look, if you're not going to serve me, I'm going to let you go, and you figure out what's going to happen. And when you're not following God and God's not watching over you and He takes His blessing off of what's going on, it doesn't go very well. So they're serving the devil basically now. 
And they start being conquered. And, and there's this whole phase of being conquered. And they're conquered by the Assyrians. And then they're conquered by the Babylonians. And they're conquered by the Persians. They're conquered by the Packers. They're conquered by everybody. Even the bad teams beat them. It's just over and over and over and over again. And now we get down to here and we get to Jesus' day. And, and who is it? It's Rome. One more superpower that is conquered and oppressing Jesus' children. And they're just tired now. They're just tired of losing. They want a new coach. You know, they want somebody that can come in and take them out again and make them who they ought to be because they're tired of it. And a new leader was promised by the prophets. I mean, when you read through all this prophetic stuff back in the day, you could see that a new leader was promised. And that the problem for them was that they don't have the advantage that we have now. What we have now is, is knowledge that the prophets, what they did is they were prophesying about both the first and the second coming of Jesus. We know that now because we're in between and we can see that some of the prophecies like Bethlehem and the crucifixion and some of those things were about Jesus' first coming and some of the prophecies are about Jesus' eventual second coming. And we don't know when that's going to be, but some of those were about that. So these people are reading through here, right? They're reading through Isaiah. We just had Christmas last week, right? You understand this. Handel did it very well. And He shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's from Isaiah. And so they're thinking, when this king comes, when this Messiah guy comes, he is gonna, he's going to rock and roll. He's going to be the king. He's going to be in charge of everything. King of kings. And they're reading all these prophecies. And we now know that that's spiritual and that that's about the eventual kingdom, but it's not about Jesus' first coming. So they were confused. And they were looking for someone to lead the revolution. And I just got to say that, that those of us who are in Africa... And those of you who understand about Kenya it will, will agree with me and us that we would really love for you to be praying for Kenya this week because tomorrow they have their national elections for president. First time in six years that they have had national elections and they're really worried about violence. Um, they're worried about violence because they, uh, last time there was an election, there was one guy from one party winning, and then all the power went out, and all the information went out for about 30 minutes, and then when the power came back on, the other guy had been declared a winner. You know, kind of like the 49ers tried to do with the Super Bowl. It was really, really, I mean, it was just like that. Just like Chicago, right? Vote early and vote off. And this is what was going on. It was very obvious that, that there was stuff going on behind the scenes. And people got mad and thousands of people got killed and hundreds of thousands in the slums where we've been working were displaced because of the violence. And Obama's father is Kenyan. And so, you know, that whole thing plays into that. So please pray for them this week. But, but the people of Kenya are waiting for a revolution. Maybe the people of, of you in your tribe are waiting for a revolution. Let me help you to understand something. These people, 30 A.D., were waiting for a revolution. This is Rome. This is Nero. This is gladiator guy, right? This is people who, the, the people who would publicly kill people in the Colosseum. They would bring in the wild animals that we just saw in Africa just so that they could kill them in front of people. This was a ruthless society. And every once in a while, there would be a revolt, a re revolution or a revolt of some kind, and the Jews would rise up and try to overthrow Rome, and what would Rome do? Rome would take them and crucify them on crosses and put them up all along the road so that people could see them. This is their frame, okay? This is who these people are. 
And so the Jews would deal with this in many different ways. They had lots of different ways of dealing with it. Some became more loyal to the, to the Roman government, and, and some tried to become zealots, like some of Jesus' followers were zealots, who were like the, basically the terrorists. I mean, they, they were the ones that would go around doing you know, sniper attacks and things like that. And, and then some, called the Essenes, were the removal group. They were the group. They were the, like the Amish. They were like the. They were like that. Well, maybe you've seen this show, the Modern Day Preppers. Have you seen that? Okay, that's who they are. They're the preppers. The prepper. I mean, it's a show on TV now, and it's a big phenomenon right now. People that are putting up bunkers, right, and they're stockpiling spam and food, and they're getting their Utah conceal and carry license for their guns, so that they can all be ready to go when the world all disintegrates, right? That's who the Essenes were back in Jesus' day. But there's this, one, there's this one prepper guy, there's this one wilderness guy who comes out for some reason, God has a call on his life, and he says, hey, I want you to come out and I want you to start preaching. And so he comes out and he starts preaching, and he's a wild dude, and he just starts preaching, you need to repent, everybody needs to repent because the kingdom's coming. And, and he was so wild, he wore camel hair and he ate bugs and he walked around preaching this message of repentance and he gathered a following. And you may have guessed by now, his name was John and he was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And he started telling everyone, he came from that group, he came out of the wilderness because they were so afraid of the government and they were so ready for a revolt out here with his little prepper group that, that he came back in and he said, hey, it's about time for the kingdom. And so one day Jesus shows up and, um, and, 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 and so, you know, John goes, he's here. The kingdom has started. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world, he's here. And Jesus shows up and he goes, hey, cousin, how's it going? Yeah, here's what I want to have happen first. Okay, I'm getting ready to start my kingdom. And here's how I'm going to start my kingdom. This is really fascinating. I want you to baptize me. Who starts their kingdom this way? Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me, and Jesus said, No, let it be done now that it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, just a beautiful moment happened. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You probably know where I'm going with this, don't you? Who hasn't been baptized yet? Yeah. I mean, come on, you guys. Jesus, the very first thing He did is He submitted Himself to the waters of baptism in humility and said, the very first thing I'm going to do is give Myself up to you. If you haven't done that yet, outside these walls right over there, there's a baptism information table by our stained glass we finally got going out there. I'd love for have you to get some information. Or just understand that Palm Sunday, three weeks, we do this every year on Palm Sunday now, Great way to celebrate Easter together if you haven't submitted to the waters of baptism yet. And we've got a way to we'll answer all your questions. We'll help you with all that stuff. But, but we'd love for you to get baptized this Palm Sunday. We had 350 people do it in two weekends last fall. We have a big pile every time we do this. Really is a very awesome thing. Jesus got baptized in the Jordan River. Um, you could do that if you go on the Holy Land trip with me in May, but otherwise, you can get baptized anywhere. As a matter of fact, we found out that seven of the people on our, on our missions trip hadn't been baptized yet, so we had a big baptism service in Kenya. It was really awesome. It was just amazing to see God work and His Spirit work as we were together like that. And I want to encourage you to do that, because although when we, when we got baptized over there, we didn't see the dove of God come down, you could feel that God was happy with what we were doing. This must have been pretty important, because 
because God said, hey, you know what? Hang, stop time. I'm going to park the sky. I want to just yell down and say, way to go, son. That didn't happen very often. Pretty important. And Jesus told us to go into all the world. I said that already. But what are we supposed to do when we go into all the world? We're supposed to make disciples, teach them everything Jesus commanded. We're supposed to baptize them. So that, that's my job. I'm just trying to do my job. You need to get baptized. Okay? Um, it, 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 Jesus started with humility. That's just such a great example to me. And, and so what happens after that? Jesus goes out and dukes it out with the devil. Because as soon as you make a public commitment, as soon as you do something, Africa trip people in the room, listen to me, God, the devil's going to come after you now. He's going to try to tempt you because you've been on a spiritual experience and he's going to come after you. He does that with Jesus. Jesus uses the word and he, he successfully battles Satan and then he gets ready to go start his ministry. So, so the beginning of his ministry is this baptism and this devil temptation thing. And then he walks into church the next week after he's done with the devil. And he walks into the synagogue and they hand him the, roll, the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he says this. The Spirit, I mean he's reading from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord, of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do, here's my ministry, here's my mission plan, okay? Here's my, here's my vision statement. To proclaim good news to the poor... He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's my mission statement. That's what I'm going to do. And then it says, and then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to everyone, back to the attendant, and he sat down. I love this scripture. You know, Jesus reads this and he just kind of leaves it hanging there. And he sits down. And it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Translation, it's on. What time is it? It's kingdom time. Okay? That's what Jesus just did right here. And then he starts teaching and he starts doing miracles, and all of a sudden it just blows up. I mean, his ministry goes crazy. He's turning, you know, water into Pinot Noir, and he's doing leprosy healings, and he's making lame men walk and raising the dead. And he's so legitimate in his teaching that he starts to attract a crowd. And almost instantly, there are all these people that are following Jesus. Why are they following Jesus? Because they think he's going to be the new coach, because they think he's going to be the new revolution leader. I mean, they like the miracles and all this stuff, but they've been waiting, they've been hungry for somebody to come along and lead the revolution. As a matter of fact, at one point, he's got like fifteen to 20,000 people following him so intently that they forgot to eat. And his disciples come to him and they go, hey, uh, we need to feed these people. He says, oh yeah, okay, well give me what you got, and the five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies them and he feeds them. That's how crazy this thing is. And it, and it says on in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says Jesus knows what's going on. That's one of the advantages He had. And He knew that they had intended to come and make Him a king by force. That's how desperate they were for, for power and for revolution, to make Him a king by force. So He withdrew to the mountain. So He ran away, basically. Okay? Jesus saw where this was going, and He didn't want it. It's kind of like you guys with me and the, the whole thing with the Pope. You've got to stop turning my name in. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Leave the Cardinals alone. They won't take me. It's not going to work, okay? The, the people wanted to make Him the King. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted what they wanted. Because that's when, when you're oppressed and when you're, doing, when you're feeling this way, you, you want to be out of it. 
And you're not going to understand anything different. You know, when you're a kid, human nature is just, I'm going to understand things the way I want to understand them. Like this cartoon. This kid, my dentist says, bacon and soda works as good as toothpaste. No, that's baking soda. Okay? You're, you're just twisting it around. We've got to have a bacon joke every week. Okay? Jesus, Jesus came to a very different kind of a kingdom. And they're not comprehending it. Okay? They're not comprehending it. No comprendo. Uh, they're not getting this. They can't get it through their head. Kyle Eidelman said it really, really well. He said, here's what Jesus did. He said, guys, here's my plan. Here's, what, here's how we're going you know, to do the kingdom. And the, guy, and the people are all around like, okay, Jesus, how are we going to do the kingdom? How are we going to overthrow the Roman government? And Jesus says, well, okay, here's the plan. We're going to love people. And they go, okay, now by love, you mean overthrow? No, no, we're just going to love them. And by love, you mean we're going to be angry at them? No, no, I don't think you're getting it. Well, Jesus, what if one of these Roman guys is my neighbor? Well, then I want you to love your neighbor. Okay? But they're our enemy. Yeah, I know. I want you to pray for your enemies. Well, what if they ask me to carry their coat for a mile? Well, then I want you to carry it for two miles. See how crazy this is? They're all looking for a revolt. They all want to take over the Roman government. And Jesus is like, no, we're just going to love them. We're just going to serve them. This is crazy kingdom. This is not a kingdom. This is crazy. I mean, politicians say they want to serve people, but you can't make a change in the world without power. Can you? The crowd never really got into the love thing. I'll just be honest with you. Did they? They just wanted, a, they just wanted their new coach, right? I mean, think about this. All the way up to Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate here in three weeks, all the way up to Palm Sunday, what are they doing? They're trying to make him the king. As a matter of fact, Palm Sunday was their way of making him a king. Do you realize this? I mean, they're waving their palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, and they're yelling for this guy because Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they think he's coming in to start the revolution and they're all excited. What does Hosanna mean? Save us. Save us, Jesus. They're not doing this because they're excited that Jesus is going to go die on a cross for their sins. They have no frame of reference for that at all. They think Jesus is coming for the revolution. And when they realize that He's not, they turn on Him. And what is, Je- I mean, what is Jesus doing when He's coming in on Palm Sunday? And all the people, I mean, it should have been His best day ever, right? All the people are like, Jesus rocks, Jesus rocks, this is awesome. And what does it say? It says, it says as He approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace. See, you're looking for political peace. You're looking for power peace. You're looking for freedom from oppression from the Roman government. That's not going to give you peace. God's love is going to give you peace. Forgiveness for your sins is going to give you peace. And he wept. Five days later, they realized that he was not going to be the revolution leader that they wanted, and so they turned on him. And they killed him to try to stop the revolution. Which, of course, didn't work because he didn't stay dead. And instead of bringing a revolt or a reform, Jesus brought a rebirth and changed history from B.C. to A.D. That's the kingdom story. It's pretty insane. Dr. James Allen Francis described the life of Jesus this way. You may have heard this before. 
Jesus was born in an obscure village, a child of a poor peasant couple. He worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never visited a big city. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He had no family. He owned no home. He did none of the things that we think of when we think of greatness. And yet, 19 centuries have come and gone, and he is still the central figure of the human race. And all the armies that have ever marched, and all the navies that have ever sailed, and all the parliaments that have ever sat, and the kings that have ever reigned, and all the presidents that have ever been elected have not put together, affected life on earth as much as this one solitary life. That's pretty remarkable. He brought a different kingdom. He challenged the culture. And up to now, the kingdom was all, you know, the culture was all about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Up until Jesus came, I mean, there were a few outliers who were trying to get society to come along and take care of the needy and do all those kinds of things. But it didn't work until Jesus came. Rodney Stark is a professor of comparative religions at the University of Washington. And he wrote a book when he was not a Christian called The Rise of Early Christianity. And in it, he tracked the first 300 years of Christianity and how it changed the world literally. Ironically, think this all the way through. Rome was overthrown by Jesus. Where is the Vatican? Have you put all that together? Right? I mean, that's, that that's became the center of Christianity. How did that happen? It happened because of Jesus' love kingdom instead of power kingdom. Examples. In that day, if you had a baby that had uh, special needs... The society would say, even Plato and Aristotle, great Greek philosophers, would say, you know what, that child doesn't have a chance. Take it out in the wilderness and leave it and let the animals have it. Literally. So what would Christians do? Christians knew that, that we are made in the image of God and they would go out and they would rescue that child. Can I just say a, a second? The guy that was leading up here, Jay, Jay and Laura, his wife, adopted a special needs uh, girl from China several years ago, and they're going for a big surgery on Saturday. I'd love for you to pray for them because they literally have done what I just talked about and gone and rescued Raina, and she needs prayers because it's a big, it's a big 12-hour surgery to do a bunch of stuff that she needs done this week. It's, it's, it, that's, what, that's what I'm talking about. In the male-dominated culture, what did they do? They taught husbands to love their wives and to provide for their families. Rome was not providing social services, just like the government of Kenya, which turns its eyes on the slums of Nairobi. So what happened? Just like Kenya, the Christians came along and said, we'll help take care of those people. And it changes history. And the list just goes on and on and on. And history just continues to get changed. And 300 years later, 300 years later, Constantine, the emperor, finally becomes a Christian. Christianity has become so incredibly uh, affirming and so popular and so beautiful that who wouldn't want to be a part of it? Because the value of human life and the value of all these things that, that Jesus came to bring are there. Now, that's the story of Christianity. That's the story, that's the history of, of Christianity taking up. Let me take you back to the story for a second, because there's one little minor problem in this part of the story. There's some great miracles and all kinds of stuff, but if you read the story this week, there was an interesting part that you probably were a little perplexed with. And that part is that John the Baptist gets arrested. And, and he gets arrested for speaking truth because there's a, there's a part of grace and truth that has to go together. And he's preaching truth to the king, and the king doesn't like it. Really, his wife doesn't like it. And so he's in prison, and John is doubting in prison. Okay, He's doubting in prison. 
It says that when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent the disciples to him and said, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And believe that? Doubt from the cousin of Jesus? Doubt from the guy who baptized Jesus? Doubt from the guy who preached about Jesus coming? Doubt from the guy who heard stories all of his life about growing up when his mom would tell him, hey, you remember? Well, you don't remember because you were in the womb, but when you were in my womb, you were about six months into the womb, and Mary, my cousin, came over, and she had Jesus in her womb, and you jumped in my womb. Remember the story from Christmas? And you jumped in my womb because you recognized the Messiah. John, you knew the Messiah was here when he was barely in his mother's womb. You should know this. And now what is he doing? He is doubting. He is doubting Jesus. Why? Because remember, John came from the Essenes. John is the wilderness prepper guy. John thinks that the kingdom is supposed to be about power too. John doesn't understand all this either. And maybe it doesn't make any sense to you. Maybe Christianity doesn't make any sense to you. It's just some kind of a pipe dream. It's it's some kind of, it's Mark's, Mark said it was a crutch. Maybe that's what you feel like it is. That's okay. I just want to tell you that it's okay. Because if John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest human being who ever lived, can doubt, then it's okay for you to doubt. You've got to ask yourself, why, why would John be doubting right about now? Well, it's because he's in prison, man. And when your life is not going very good, it's easy to doubt, right? I mean, think about it. He's in prison. He's staring at the prison walls. Maybe he's just uh, got nothing to do but watch the prosperity televangelists on TV telling him that if you believe in Jesus, everything's going to be great. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Everything's not great because I'm getting ready to be beheaded, which is kind of a disconnect, you know, if you think about it. I don't know how that whole thing works. And he's like, and by the way, Jesus, you're my cousin and you're out there turning water into wine and healing people while I'm rotten here in prison getting ready to have my head cut off. Why don't you do something for me? He's got to be thinking, God, why don't you do something with me? That's when we doubt, isn't it? That, that's when we doubt. It's when I'm not sure if God is really helping me. I, I like this kingdom idea, but I want my king. I want the kingdom to be about me. I just got to tell you, it's okay. Lee Strobel said, if we could divide the people of the world, the Christians of the world, into three categories, it would be this. Those who have doubted, those who are going to doubt, and those who are brain dead. You decide which category you want to be in. Okay? If John can doubt, it's okay for you to doubt. And I love Lee. He was an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune and a complete atheist who didn't want anything to do with Christianity until his wife became a Christian. And that became a little bit troubling for him. So he decided to investigate. And here's what he said in one of his books. He said, I didn't believe the gospel was true, but I was con- and I was convinced it was, if it was the truth, it had implications for my life. So I vowed to check out the Christian faith as a journalist would. He's the one that wrote Case for Christ and Case for Faith, in case you're interested in a phenomenal read on this. I would separate myth from reality and see what remained, and I'd examine the evidence to see for myself. But he was honest enough to begin his search with a prayer. And can I ask you, if you're a doubter here today, welcome to the club. Some days I get up and I go, you know what, what am I doing? I need to go get a real job. I'm just like everybody else that's a Christian. Sometimes I feel, you know, and it's usually when I'm looking at a prison wall, okay? But here's the prayer. I wrote it up here because I want you to see. Here's the only thing I ask you. If you have doubts about this kingdom today, this is what Strobel prayed. God, I don't even believe that you're there. It's okay to say that. But if you are, I want to find you, and I really do want to know the truth. So if you exist, please show yourself to me. You have nothing to fear praying that prayer. 
Because if he's not there, he's not going to show you anything. And John did exactly the same thing, really, if you think about it. John said, hey, are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else, right? That's, that was his prayer. It was the same thing. Hey, I need you to show up. I need you to do something because I need to know that you're here. I need to feel you. And that's how we're supposed to be when we have doubts, okay? And some of you are like me. You, you grew up with this stuff. And every once in a while, you're like, you know what? I've been hearing about Jesus. You know, you're, like the, you're like the preacher's kid who was told to go wash his hands by his mom one day. And, and he was like, why do I need to wash my hands all the time? And she said, because of germs. And he kind of walked off in a huff and he said, germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus, that's all I hear around here and I've never seen either one. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's where you're at, okay? That's fair. John the Baptist doubted. He doubted. The greatest human being who ever lived doubted. Stephen Brown said, if you've never had a question about your faith, you probably don't have much faith. What did John do right? about his doubts. He went to Jesus with them. And Jesus answered him. There are two things I think you could do with your doubts. Number one is you witness the miracles. Jesus, Jesus went to him. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Now remember what he, re remember what he read from Isaiah earlier, okay? Because this is important. Go back to John and tell him the blind have sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I.e., I've been doing what I said I was going to do. And if you have doubts in your life, the first thing that you ought to do is stop looking at the prison walls and start looking at the stuff that Jesus said He was going to do that He actually did. And we're going to be doing that for the next couple of weeks around here. Matter of fact, just a little side note, uh, tonight starts the Bible mini-series. On, uh, I don't even know what channel it's on, but it's the Survivor guy. What channel? I can't hear everybody at the same time. <laughs> History Channel. Okay, it's on the... Speaking of tongues on the front row, thank you. It's on the History Channel. Starts tonight. Two hours for five nights. It's Mark Burnett, the Survivor guy. They put a bunch of money into this. He married the angel lady, and they put this all together, right? And it's going to be phenomenal. I would encourage you, DVR it or watch it and think about, I mean, I'm going to come back from the Sunday night service and sit down and watch it tonight because it's going to be a way to help you to understand this story even better. Maybe your small group could go through it together. I think it'd be phenomenal. Here's what the Bible says. This is important. These things are written so that you may believe that's why we have the story. That's why we have the Bible. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you will have life in His name. That's how this whole thing is supposed to work. So, so ask God and look for the miracles. And look for the miracles around you. Stop looking at your problems and start looking at where God is working. And the second thing I would encourage you to do is to be the miracle. Be the miracle. Because the best way to feel God is to let Him move through you. And those of us who just got back from Africa could tell you that we have no problem believing in God. Right? Now, not, when we got there, we were not real happy with the way that God would allow these kids to, to live. Got to be honest with you. But as we started to minister to them and they started ministering to us, the best way to feel God is to let Him move through you. And as soon as we saw these kids and they ministered to us and we ministered to them and we could feel God moving through us, you can start to understand that there really is a God. Because if these kids can be this happy and have this little, you know, if you meet them and then you serve them and then you serve with them and when you realize that Jesus is all they have, 
and they realize that Jesus is all they need, it changes your whole perspective and you start to wonder who's the poor one. Watching that and I'm thinking, I don't know how they killed that guy. Do you? How do you kill the leader of the love revolution? But it had to happen because I'm a sinner and he had to take my sin upon that cross so that he could pay the penalty and then rise again so that I could know that I could be free. We're getting ready to take communion. Um, maybe you're a doubter. Um, I understand that. I would encourage you to bring your doubts to Jesus. I would encourage you to bring your doubts to God right now. If there's one little small smidgen of belief and faith in your life, you don't have to be from Parkview. We encourage you to take these emblems that represent the body and the blood of Jesus that were shed on the cross and commune with us right now. No matter what level your faith is at, smallest fraction, a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain. That's what Jesus said. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we commune right now. We thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> I thank you for getting to preach in the New Testament. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's grace, it's love. I thank you that I get to, to preach in a time that I think is a lot like the first 300 years of church history. That was the pre-Christian era, and now we live in the post-Christian era. And I thank you that I get to be in this time when I can come around from the outside of society and show people love and show them Jesus. Because it shows up a lot more right now than it ever did before. And I pray that you'll be with our church as we do that as well. And Lord, I pray for the souls of the people in this room. I know there are some people that have been gone for a long time, or maybe some people that have have never ever been in your family. If there's a mustard seed of faith inside of them, Lord, help them to open up to you right now and say, Jesus, I don't know if I understand all of this, but I do believe. I do believe this good news that you proclaim to the poor, to the lame, to the blind, to the sinner like me, that there is salvation. And the Scripture that we didn't even get time to touch on this week was... John 3.16, that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. I believe that. We'll take communion now together, Lord, all of us, with this small amount of faith. And we ask with the disciples that you will increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray.